it's always our responsibility to humble ourselves. You don't pray and ask God to humble you. That's not a good plan. It is your responsibility to humble yourself. Then God will exalt you. God's plan A is always humility. God's plan B is humiliation. And if you don't stay on plan A, by default, you're signing up for plan B. That's how much God loves you. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Last week, we learned that pride can be a roadblock to experiencing revival. Pastor Trent introduced us to Rehoboam, a king of Israel who struggled with pride. Today, in part two of the message, we find out, does King Rehoboam humble himself or does he find himself on God's plan B for humility? Here's Pastor Trent. John Flavel's a guy that was a historian, and he said this. He said, they that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. You got a pride problem? It's because you do not know how superior and holy and beautiful and perfect God is. You don't know God. You have a pride problem? You do not know how needy and wretched and blind and miserable and vulnerable you are. Cast yourself upon God for any and every circumstance and don't be like Rehoboam, that when things were going well, he abandoned the law of God. Here's the second thing we're going to learn. When humility is abandoned, you invite the resistance of God. Look back here at verse 2. What was happening? What, what, why did Rehoboam lose his mind and lose his humility? Look at verse 2. It says, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, is that not an awesome name, Shishak? So Shishak... The king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. You understand that Shishak, not a godly dude, all right? So the enemies of God came to attack the people of God. Remember all those fortified cities and how things were going well in Israel? Let's see how that worked out for him. Uh, verse 3, Shishak brought 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans and Sukim and Ethiopians, and Shak took the fortified cities. Now, I can understand him taking cities, but fortified cities? Yeah, he took them, scaled the walls. And when he scaled the walls, it says in verse 5, then Shemaiah a prophet came to Rehoboam. Prior to every great awakening, God raises up a prophet. And here comes the prophet, Shemaiah, the prophet. He came to Rehoboam. Think Rehoboam was glad to see him? 
Finally, there's a man of God that can tell me what's going on and how to get out of this mess. I am so glad you're here because Shishak is on his way and I'm sure that God sent you to tell me as the king what we should do to defend ourselves against Shishak. Please, prophet, please tell us what we should do. So the prophet comes to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak and here's what the prophet said to them. Thus says the Lord, you abandoned me. So I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Period. That is all. Have a nice day. Like, what? Prophet, prophet. Um, you did a good job giving us the diagnosis of the problem. We already knew we had a problem. We're listening to you now to tell us the prescription. Could you just take out the prescription? pad and write us a prescription, what, whatever we need to do to get out of the mess that we're in, we'll listen. Nothing. Or had the prescription already been given? Do you remember five chapters earlier in this book? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. The prescription had already been given. Rehoboam already knew what to do. Let's find out if he did it. So what happens when you're surrounded by the enemy? Why is God allowing this to happen? Remember, when humility is abandoned, you invite the resistance of God. So here was Shishak who surrounded Jerusalem. It reminds me a few weeks ago, Andrew and I were in Dallas, Texas. We went there for a family life conference and we were teaching and preaching down there. And so uh, one morning we woke up and outside of our, our window at this hotel, we were staying at a high Regency, I think, and we looked out and the Dallas SWAT team had arrived. There was all this commotion going on and these, these policemen in full body armor with the big guns and were getting out and they were putting a perimeter up around the building next door. The building next door was actually the, the Dallas Stars hockey arena and it had a big parking garage attached to it. And so Andrea turned on the news and so I went down to find out what was going on, get involved. And um, so I found out that what was going on was there was, there was a jewelry thief. He broke the glass cases in this jewelry store. He grabbed the jewels. He stole a car and he raced into the parking garage. And the police surrounded the parking garage and they were about to go in and get the jewelry thief. And I'm thinking, black lives matter and police lives matter and my life matters. And uh, this was like going to be a, like a Texas showdown. You, I guess this happens all the time in Texas. I don't know. It's got guns and, you know, shootout and all this stuff. And so it, it reminded me of what was happening here in Jerusalem. I mean, the, the enemy had surrounded the people. There was no escape. Now, somehow the jewelry thief escaped. I don't know what happened. He might have come to the family life conference. I don't know. But uh, anyway, in this case, there was no escape. Or was there? There was a way of escape. It was humility. Humility is the way of escape. But when humility is abandoned, you invite the resistance of God. What was God doing when he had abandoned his people? And let me just ask you this. How near does God seem to you? 
does it seem like God has abandoned you? Does it seem like you are far from God? And it's like, God, do you see what's going on down here? Do, do you see the enemies surrounding me? Did, did you happen to see the medical report I got last week? Did you happen to see the bank balance, God? God, did you see what was going on in my marriage? God, where are you and why don't you come and fix it now? That's the attitude of Rehoboam. And that's an attitude of pride. When you are surrounded by enemies and you feel like you are abandoned by God, the humble response is to not look and shake your fist at God, but to take your finger and point it at your own heart and say, is there anything in me that is causing God to abandon me? It can happen. And it happens all the time because God loves us too much. In James chapter 4, this is New Testament now, he says God opposes the proud. See the word oppose there? You know what the word oppose means? You know what God does with proud people? This is what God does with proud people. He strikes a Heisman pose. He stiff arms proud people. That's as close as you're getting right there. God opposes the proud. So if God seems like he's distant, you you might want to find out why. And you might want to ask yourself, is it because of my pride that I'm being stiff-armed by God? But here's the good news. He gives grace to the humble. And even for people who sense they have been abandoned by God, here's the promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It was the exact opposite of what the prophet said to that king. You abandoned me, I abandoned you. God says, you draw near to me, I draw near to you. It's a wonderful little arrangement we have here. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We usually get that flipped. We spend all of our time exalting ourselves, and God has to turn around and humble us. And it's always our responsibility to humble ourselves. You don't pray and ask God to humble you. That's not a good plan. It is your responsibility to humble yourself. Then God will exalt you. God's plan A is always humility. God's plan B is humiliation. And if you don't stay on plan A, by default, you're signing up for plan B. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loved his people here in the book of Chronicles. When he wants to send an awakening, he creates a sense of crisis so that we will humble ourselves and understand how dependent we are on God for everything. I believe that's what God is doing in our nation. We are on plan B as a nation. I want to wonder why there's all these terrorist threats and there's so much debt and there's so much flooding. What is going on? God is trying to get us to a place of need so that we will humble ourselves. But when humility is abandoned, you invite the resistance of God. Here's the third thing. A periodic crisis of humility is essential to the ongoing process of deliverance. Let's find out what happened. Look back at verse 6. Then the princes of Israel and the king did what? Humbled themselves. Underline that. They humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. Implication, 
we are not. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Oh, the prophet now has the prescription. And Shemaiah comes and says, they have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but will grant them some deliverance. Underline the word some. Notice it's not going to be full deliverance. He says, my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. But then we find out why it's not full surrender or full deliverance. He says, nevertheless, verse 8, nevertheless, they shall be servants to him and they shall know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the country. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and he took away the treasures of the king's house. How much treasure do you think was in the king's house? Who was the richest man ever? Daddy. He was living on daddy's money. And it wasn't, it's never good for a a son to live on daddy's money. He might get proud thinking somehow he did something to earn it. And so in order for King Rehoboam to stay in a humble position, God had an enemy come in and take away the money that he'd been delivered, that he'd been counting on for his deliverance. And that the treasure of the king's house was took away. He took away everything. And he also took away the shields of gold that Solomon, daddy, had made. And then verse 10, King Rehoboam made in their place Shields of bronze. What's superior, gold or bronze? What's superior, a Cadillac or a moped? You driving a moped? Maybe it's because you're too proud to drive a Cadillac. And God knows that. Maybe God knows that when you're established and you're strong, you have a tendency to be proud and forget him. So he's keeping you right there in a dependent state like he did Rehoboam so you won't forget God. A crisis of humility is essential to the ongoing process of deliverance. Let's talk about these two words, crisis and process. And let's talk about these two words, revival and discipleship. So we have around here a very clear identity about who we are. We are Harvest Bible Chapel, and we have a mission statement that says, we exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The Great Commission was when Jesus told the church to go and make what? Make disciples. We're not just to make believers. We're not just to make admirers of Christ. We're to make disciples. And that is an ongoing, lifelong process. Everything we do around here is about making a quality of disciples. We are about a quality of discipleship, not a quantity of disciples. And so this service is a disciple-making machine. Our small groups are disciple-making machines. This building is a disciple-making factory. We are about making disciples because that's what Jesus told us to make.
So that is an ongoing process that takes place over years and time. And I trust that even you personally sense that I'm a better disciple than I was a year ago. How many of you would say I'm a better disciple than I was a year ago? I see progress and change and it's up and to the right. I stumble and fall, but I'm so glad for friends and and a church that loves me and teaches me God's word and, and prays for me and encourages me and even rebukes me when I'm wrong. And that is a process of discipleship. It's ongoing. It, it may be a 30, 40, 50, 60 year process. And it's a good process. But I wanna challenge you, don't be content with process discipleship because there are seasons when God accelerates the discipleship with a crisis of revival, an awakening, a new urgency, a new desperation where God may do in five minutes in revival what may take 15 years in the process of discipleship. Here's how they work together. They're not enemy, they're friends. Revival is a crisis that accelerates the process of discipleship. So around here, man, we're here every week. This is a a service. And you know what this service is? This service is intended to be not just a process. It's intended to be a crisis where we open up God's word and you are challenged with urgency and simplicity and clarity to make a move toward God. Every time you meet in a small group, it should be a sense of crisis where I am challenged to do what I know I'm already supposed to do. When you wake up in the morning and carve out a little extra time and open up God's word and put your face in the Bible and say, God, I need you today to speak to me. I want to obey. That is to be a crisis. It is to accelerate the process of lifelong discipleship. But without a crisis, here's what will happen. You'll think that Christianity is just about getting better and smarter, and wiser. It is that. It's not just that. And at times, we need the accelerant, the crisis of an urgent meeting with God to accelerate the process of discipleship. And I believe that that's part of what God is doing even in these days here at our church. In the year 1734, in Northampton, Massachusetts, there was a pastor who carried a burden for his community of about 1,100 people. He was going around and evaluating the spiritual condition, and he said at that time it was a degenerate time. It was marked by dullness of religion. If you ask somebody in that town, hey, can you point me to a vertical, Bible-believing, gospel-saturated church where people are on fire about getting the Great Commission done, they would have shrugged their shoulders and said, I don't know what you're talking about. Because there was a dullness, and that was affecting the young people in town. They weren't getting married. They were giving up on the whole concept of marrying. They were hooking up, and there were a lot of fatherless children showing up. Sound like any culture you know of? I'm talking about 1734 before America was ever even established as an independent nation. And so this burden on Jonathan Edwards led him to pray that God would send awakening to his community. It was a town divided by two families who were feuding with one another. And in the spring of 1734, there were two young people in that town 
that died tragically. And it sparked thoughts of eternity in those who were friends of those two young people. In the fall of that year, Jonathan Edwards began to preach a series of sermons on justification by faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. One of his sermons was entitled, A Divine and Superior Light. And this is what he said in that message. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and actually having the sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Do you know what he was saying? There was a difference between being able to give a definition of honey and actually tasting its sweetness. And he was drawing a line in his community between those who knew intellectual facts about God, who had some knowledge of the Word of God, who maybe had parts of doctrine memorized, but had never actually been the subject of the grace of God. I believe that condition is exists in our community. I believe it exists right here in this room. There are people who have gone to church, you know definitions, you've gone through some religious formulas, and yet you've never tasted of the superior greatness of the grace of God that has stirred your soul with love and passion for the things of God so that it produces a hatred toward the things that God hates. And so Jonathan Edwards began to preach that series of sermons, and God began to send awakening there in the community. Over the next six months, 300 of that town's population of 1,100 were hopefully converted to Christ. That's an important two-word phrase that Jonathan Edwards began to use because you know what he was saying? You can pray a prayer, you can raise a hand, you can sign a card, you can go through the waters of baptistry. That is no indication that you have been genuinely converted to Christ. This week as we've gone out and we've shared the gospel with a lot of people and you may have seen people respond and pray a prayer uh, and we may say there were a lot of people who were hopefully converted. You say, well, they got saved. Maybe. The proof is in the pudding did that crisis begin the process of change and sanctification and holiness? And is there going to be something that indicates they're no longer the person they were? And so we love the... We're going to start using it around here. That person was hopefully converted. It's going to be a great, this is going to be a great phrase for us because the proof is going to be how you live out the life that God has now given you. It's not that your changed life makes you saved. It's that your salvation changes your life and changes the direction so that there is now evidence that you are not the person that you once were. That's what God does in salvation. Jonathan Edwards continued to preach and he began to give a narrative of what God had done. He reported what God was doing, awakening the community. And he said this, God seemed to have gone out of his usual way in the quickness of his work and the swift progress his spirit made in the operation on the hearts of men. There was scarcely a single person in the town, either old or young, that was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. 
weren't thinking about basketball playoffs and how to make money and the jobs. They were thinking about what's next when this life is finished. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love and so full of joy. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's presence. Everyone essentially, uh, earnestly intent on public worship. Our public praises were then greatly enlivened and God was then served in the beauty of holiness. It was an awakening that God did. God did an awakening in 1734. God needs to do an awakening in 2015. Look back at your Bibles, and I want you to look at verse 12. Look at what happened when King Rehoboam humbled himself. It says, when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned away from him. Everybody understand that's a good thing. That's a good thing. When the wrath of God turns away from you, that's a good thing because he humbled himself. And then it says, so as not to make a complete destruction, everybody in favor of God not completely destroying America. Uh, That's a good thing. Need, Need some of that. And then it says, moreover, conditions were good in Judah. Rut-row. Rehoboam not do so good when conditions are good. The condition of Rehoboam is usually not good when conditions are good. Rehoboam tends to swell up when, with pride when things are good. Look down at verse 14. And he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Rehoboam humbled himself, first condition of revival. Rehoboam prayed, the Lord is righteous, second condition of revival. Rehoboam didn't go to the third step. Seek my face. And as a result, the awakening that God sent was short of all that could have happened if he had set his heart fully to seek the Lord. We can't be content with having a good experience with God or knowing how God sends revival. We've got to set our hearts to seek the Lord continually. Don't be content with the process of discipleship. Pray for the crisis of revival to accelerate the process of discipleship. Does God seem like He's abandoned you? You got mad at God because he abandoned you? That's a bad plan. That shows a, a proud heart. A humble heart turns its attention and says, What is it in me that has abandoned God, that is causing God to abandon me? And where can I draw near to God so that God once again will draw near to me? You may have prayed a prayer, raised your hand, signed a card, or even been baptized. But what is the evidence that shows you've been genuinely converted to Christ? As Pastor Trent showed us today, the proof is in a life that is humbly lived for Jesus Christ in obedience to Him. 
not just as his admirer, but as his disciple. Well, thanks for listening today to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. We'd like to invite you to visit us for one of our weekend worship services, Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer for you is that God's Word would resonate in your heart and mind this week. I hope you'll join us again next week at this same time. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. For more information, visit us online at harvestgranger.org.